0: Well, thank you again for having me. Um, If you were not here last night, I noted that when Fred and I talked about this conference, given the fact that I'm not a foreign missionary, um, we talked about what might be beneficial. And I do love church history. I'd much prefer preaching God's word to you, which hopefully I'll have the opportunity to do this Sunday, Lord willing, uh, morning and evening. But uh, I did think it might be beneficial if we looked at two of the great figures of the foreign missionary movement together, to sort of stir us up to understand the importance of that movement, how God worked uh, through these men, and what bearing that might have on our lives. Um, uh, you, uh, we looked last last evening. We looked at uh, William Carey, the father of modern missions, and this morning we want to look at David Brainerd. There is perhaps no more important figure in the influence of the modern foreign missions movement than that of David Brainerd. Though it was William Carey and not Brainerd who is uh, called the father of modern missions, the influence that Brainerd's missionary work among the Indians in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania played in animating Carey's missionary work in India cannot be underestimated. Um, This is one of those sort of untapped... Subjects where it probably hasn't received enough attention about the role that this young man who died at 29 um, and who himself really changed the world uh, played in the foreign missionary movement. A number of years ago, I saw a picture of a number of young adults, they must have been about 19, 20, uh, standing arm to arm in a picture on Instagram and the hashtag was world changers, and I thought to myself, probably not. And then I wrote a blog post about um, being faithful in the ordinary, and I called it to be a diaper changer, which is a much more noble task to be faithful in the little things than to try to have these grandiose thoughts that you're going to somehow narcissistically be the most important person in human history and change the world with all your supposed greatness. However... This morning I am talking to you about a young man who changed the world and really did uh, accomplish what so many naively uh, and foolishly think that they will accomplish, himself never thinking he would accomplish that. Now, almost everything that we know about David Brainerd we know from his diary. That diary was published in uh, 1749, two years after his death by Jonathan Edwards. Brainerd will die at 29 in the home of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, alongside of Edward's daughter, Jerusha, who cared for him. Edward's 17-year-old daughter, it's believed that they had a very affectionate relationship, and in one sense, though he never names Jerusha as the love of his life, does speak about that person who was so precious to him. She will also die of tuberculosis several months after Brainerd, having contracted it from him. But Brainerd's diary is a very extensive Record of the life of this young man. It is filled in with commentary by Jonathan Edwards, and so almost everything that we know about David Brainerd comes from that diary. Now, as I, I noted last night, William Carey in the Serampore Agreement. That uh, treaties that he and those other men, uh, Marshman and Ward especially, wrote together uh, about their mission work in India, wrote this. Again, if you were not here, let me note this. Let us often look at Brainerd in the woods of America. And and to really understand that statement, you have to understand what it would have been like. If any of you have read much about Washington outside of Valley Forge, um, in a very similar time period, the cold... The frostbite, the, the horrible climate, the lack of supplies and goods, that's what David Brainerd's living in on Mission Among the Indians. It's the same location. It's the same weather. It's the same era. In fact, David Brainerd uh, is born at the same time among uh, as many of the great men in American history at that time. He was born 14 years after Jonathan Edwards. He was born just three years, I believe, after George Whitfield. Around the same time as Benjamin Franklin, and he has been called one of the most ubiquitous figures in early American history. Almost everyone knew about this young man and um, knew about him prior to his diary being published. Uh, again, Carey said, "'Let us often look at Brainerd in the woods of America pouring out his very soul before God for the perishing heathen, without whose salvation nothing could make him happy.'" Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish theologian of the 19th century, uh, had purchased Edward's works on June 22nd, 1832, and in five days he made it through all of Brainerd's diary. He made a beeline straight to Brainerd's diary, which is not an easy read, I'll confess. And here's uh, McShane's conclusion about the life and labors of this young missionary. June 27th, he writes, 1832, Life of David Brainerd. Most wonderful man, what conflicts, what depressions, desertions, strength, advancements, victories within thy torn bosom. I cannot express what I think when I think of thee. Tonight, McShane says, more set upon missionary enterprise than ever. Now McShane will go on to hold hands with a number of famous Scottish missionaries, the Bonar brothers, Horatius and Andrew, uh, two of the most notable, in carrying out mission work to Israel. And I have no doubt that was fueled in large part by the example of Brainerd on June 28th. McShane writes, Oh, for Brainerd's humility and sin-loathing disposition. So if you want to be a world changer, young men, older men, if I want to be a world changer, you have to have humility and a sin-loathing disposition because that is what marks David Brainerd supremely. Humility and sin-loathing. In a letter to W.C. Burns in September of 1840, McShane wrote, "'O for Brainerd's heart for perfect holiness, "'to be perfect as God is holy, pure as Christ is pure, "'perfect as our Father in heaven.'" Is perfect. Now, before we delve into Brainerd's life uh, here this morning, I want to just say a couple other things that came out of Brainerd's example. Brainerd's going to be expelled from Yale College. He's going to be falsely accused of something. He's going to be expelled in his third year at Yale. That expulsion is going to lead to him going to the Indians. But That expulsion is also going to be the impetus for the formation of what is now Princeton University and Princeton Seminary. Because of the treatment he endured at Yale, Aaron Burr Sr., who was the father of Aaron Burr Jr., the famous duelist, um, will note and will have said to Archibald Alexander who was the first professor at Princeton Seminary, that if it wasn't for Brainerd's expulsion for Yale, New Jersey College, now Princeton, never would have been formed. I just want you to think about this. Some of the most formative, influential schools in America, Dartmouth, was founded because of David Brainerd. All because of this one young man and the hardship he endured and his heart for the Lord and for mission. Uh, John Newton, the great pastor, theologian, and hymnist, wrote... In a letter to a fellow pastor in seventeen in 1808, next to the word of God, I like those books best, which give an account of the lives and experience of people. No book of this kind has been more welcome to me than the life of Brainerd of New England. That's a pretty strong commendation from John Newton. Now, who was David Brainerd? Well, he was the third son of his parents. He was the third of six children. His father um, died when he was just nine years of age. His mother died when he was 14. I want you to think about this. This young man who changes the world through his missionary enterprise loses both of his parents by the time he's 14. can't even imagine the heartache, the loneliness. His father had been an austere man and had probably been too strict on him, which plays into some of the severity with which he dealt with himself. He was very, 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 unfortunately, very severe on himself. That probably goes back in part to his father's austerity. Um, When his mother died, he went and he lived with his sister, Jerusha, a different Jerusha for a time. He then inherited a farm and lived on that farm by himself for a while. And Brainerd will reflect, leading up to his going off to college at Yale, he'll reflect on what's going on inside of him. Now, if any of you know anything about David Brainerd, you know that David Brainerd Uh, classified himself as suffering from melancholy. Um, That was apparently something that ran in the family. We would call that today clinical depression. Jonathan Edwards will actually lament the fact that he didn't see the medical uh, nature of Brainerd's suffering as clearly as he should have, that he looked at it more as spiritual desertion and would later reflect and say this was Definitely something from which he suffered physiologically, not spiritually. Um, Brainerd lives with a constant shadow of darkness over him. Um, As we look at these internal struggles, Brainerd first confesses this. He says, I was from my youth somewhat sober, as you would be if you lost both your parents. ...and inclined rather to melancholy than to the extreme. But I do not remember anything of conviction of sin... ...worthy of remark till I was, I believe, about seven or eight. Then I became concerned for my soul... ...terrified at the thoughts of death... ...and was driven to the performance of duties... ...but it appeared a melancholy business... ...that destroyed my eagerness for play. He will go on to say that as a teenager... ...he was very dissatisfied with the other children around him. He found them to be very frivolous, worldly... He he was very disinterested in the things they were interested in, but he was also very self-righteous. Now, this is a word to younger men who want to serve the Lord. There can be a youthful zeal to serve the Lord and to want to be committed to him that is driven by self-righteousness rather than a work of grace in the soul. You see that preeminently in David Brainerd. He has a zeal to live for the glory of God, but really his zeal is for him to be so strict in his own desires to establish righteousness, that it's not really a zeal for the glory of God, a resting in Jesus Christ, and owning Christ for himself. And as you read the diary, you see Brainerd really wrestling with his pride and his self-righteousness. He'll talk about how vile his pride was, how much he felt himself looking down at others and seeing too high views of himself as a young man. (coughs) Um... He talks about the duties that he was engaged in. Brainerd will talk about having read through the Bible twice a year and praying often, and yet all of that prior to his conversion. It's very interesting how much, how far a man can go in religious duties and yet have no real work of grace in his heart and not really have ever come to Jesus Christ. Um, Brainerd, in this respect, is a little bit like Whitfield and Wesley, if you know anything about the Holy Club, which was a pejorative term people talked about, is a group uh, in England prior to Whitfield and Wesley being converted. And they fasted and they prayed together and they read their Bibles and they had great religious asceticism, and yet there was no true work of grace in their hearts. Brainerd is right in step with that group as a young man. Um, <clears throat> Brainerd admits that he struggled with a number of evangelical truths. He struggled, and he, he sets these out quite clearly in his diary. There were, there were certain biblical truths that he hated. They were, and this is very important. He hated the strictness of the divine law. That really rises from that self-righteousness. He hates that God's law is so much deeper, so much stricter, so much more perfect, And so unattainable, because Brainerd, as a young man, wants to attain to keeping God's law. He said, I hated the strictness of the divine law. Which, by the way, should drive us to Jesus, because it is that strict and that deep. He said that he hated faith alone as the condition of salvation. He'll actually say, I could not come to understand what it meant when Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, I could not come to understand what it meant to come to Jesus and know that rest. It's a very telling statement. He says that he also hated faith, uh, and uh, related to that, he hated faith alone as the condition of salvation. He wanted to see good works in some way, playing a part in God receiving and accepting. And then the fourth thing that he hated was the sovereignty of God in election and damnation. He said he was particularly distressed when he read Romans 9. By the way, I was converted through Romans 9. My dad had taught me Romans 9 as a boy. I spent many years rebelling from 15 to 24. I found myself sitting outside of um, the... I was cooking at a country club in 2001, and sitting outside, smoking a cigarette, thinking, when is God going to save me or kill me? Because I knew the truth of Romans 9. Um, I was unwilling to go to Christ at that time, and the Lord started pressing deep into my soul uh, the truth of Romans 9, and I started wondering, what if God made me to be a vessel of destruction? What if that's what I am? And that's why I fled to Christ, because I didn't want to be a vessel of wrath. So God used Romans 9, in a sense, counterintuitively, to push me to the Savior, David Brainerd hated Romans nine, hated the doctrine of God's sovereignty and election and damnation. Now, um, when he is in his first year at Yale, at age twenty, he will um, he will express that he believes he was converted. I want to read this to you. Brainerd wrote, As I was walking in a dark, thick grove, unspeakable glory seemed to open to me in view and apprehension of my soul. I knew that I never had seen anything comparable to it for excellency and beauty. It was widely different from all the con- conceptions that I had of God, of things divine. I had no particular apprehensions of any one person in the Trinity, either the Father, the Son, or the Holy Ghost, but it appeared to be divine glory. My soul rejoiced with joy unspeakable to see such a God, such a glorious divine being, and I was inwardly pleased and satisfied that he should be God over all forever and ever. My soul was so captivated and delighted with the excellency, love, greatness, and other perfections of God that I was even swallowed up in him, at least to the degree that I had no thought as I remember at first about my own salvation and scarce reflected that there was such a creature as myself. Now, almost everyone who writes about the life of David Brainerd and points to this as his conversion does so from a praiseworthy perspective. They say, isn't that marvelous? And yet, noticeably absent is anything about the blood of Jesus, about his need for the Savior. I think that ought at least give us pause. There's nothing about the cross. There's nothing about him coming to Christ. Um, in many respects, he's drawing off of Edward's religious affections, which he no doubt was very well attuned to. Um, and yet, I think it ought to at least give us pause how, even here in his account of his conversion, um, noticeably absent is anything about Jesus Christ and the work of redemption. I think that's something to think about. Brainerd began to sense a call to ministry to take the gospel to the heathens when he was just 21 in his first year at Yale. He wrote this, I walked out this morning to the same place where I was last night and felt it then, but was somewhat relieved by reading some passages in my diary and seemed to feel as if I might pray to the great God again with freedom, but was suddenly struck with a damp from the sense I had of my own vileness." He says, then I cried to God to cleanse me from my exceeding filthiness, to give me repentance and pardon. I then began to find it sweet to pray and could think of undergoing the greatest sufferings in the cause of Christ with pleasure and found myself willing, if God should so order it, to suffer banishment from my native land among the heathen that I might do something for their salvation in distresses and deaths of any kind. That is the first intimation that Brainerd gives that he has a willingness to give his life for the salvation of the heathen. Even if it means great suffering and it will mean the greatest of sufferings for this young man. Um, Now, in his third year at Yale, I mentioned already that Brainerd is going to be expelled. Why is that important? Well, he is going to go to the Indians as a missionary because he's expelled from Yale. And here's how the expulsion happens. Uh, in 1744, right at the time of the the, the Great Awakenings, um, Gilbert Tennant, who is the founder of the Log College, which becomes Princeton Seminary ultimately through a long circuitous history, um, comes and he speaks at Yale, uh, George Whitfield is in the States, Edwards is preaching, there is the beginnings and the outbreaking of awakening happening, and there are many people that are not hap- happy about the Great Awakenings, they're not happy about religious enthusiasm, they're not happy about people telling people, if you haven't had a real experience of grace, if there are not real marks of grace in your life, if there is not an earnestness about your Christianity, then it's very likely that you were never converted. Um, the board at Yale is not happy about those emphases they 're not happy about tennant they 're not happy about Whitfield. They invite Edwards to come and speak in chapel, and they hope that Edwards is going to sort of quench this sort of religious zeal that 's happening among young people, and the questioning of these young people about the sincerity of the conversion of an older generation that didn't have that sort of excitement in their experience. Instead of quenching it, Edwards preaches a message about distinguishing marks of conversion and basically says in that talk at Yale, just because young people are concerned about the the truthfulness of the conversion of those who have uh, no outward marks, of enthusiasm doesn't mean that that's not a work of God. And so Edwards essentially sides with those who might justly raise questions about the faculty and the older members at Yale. David Brainerd is in chapel that day. Now, instead of receiving Edwards' word, the Um, The board of Yale issues a statement that if any of the students speak any negative word about any of the tutors, about any of the faculty, about any of the board members, that they should be disciplined promptly and swiftly. Not long after Edwards is there at Yale, Brainerd is in a prayer meeting. One of the tutors, Mr. Whittleby, is there, and he is praying with Brainerd and his friend, and he's praying one of these long and presumptuous and flowery prayers and Brainerd apparently says to his friend that he had no more grace than a chair. And another student passing by hears it and goes and tells. And if I have a word for young people in here, don't be a tattletale. That would be an important word to you. Don't be a tattletale. Um, he goes and tells on Brainerd. Brainerd is expelled from the school for this, a measure that's exceedingly harsh. Jonathan Edwards and, and uh, uh Jonathan Dickinson, who was uh, the first president of New New Jersey College, go to the board at Yale. They try to talk them out of expelling Brainerd to no avail. And the worst is done. Now, um, that would devastate most of us if we experience something like that. Edwards will remark that Brainerd's response to that life-shaking experience in college, was a model of how we should respond to suffering, false accusations, and hardships. That he lamented his own um, critical spirit. He lamented his own failures. He lamented um, whatever part he might have played in this. And he was very, very meek and broken, even though he had been wrongly treated. Shows something of the character of this young man. Now, it was not long after that that Jonathan Dickinson um, uh, encourages Brainerd to take up missionary work among the Indians. And so it is the expulsion at Yale that pushes him to enter in on the mission field and to go into the woods of America and to, with already poor health, take up this incredibly difficult mission And trying task. Friday, April 1st, 1743. um, Brainerd has been ordained as a Presbyterian missionary. And he writes this. I rode to Conomeek, nearly 20 miles from Stockbridge, where the Indians live with whom I am concerned. And they were lodged on a little heap of straw. I was greatly exercised with inward trials and distresses all day. And in the evening, my heart was sunk. I seemed to have no God to go to. Oh, that God would help me. April 10th of that same year, just nine days later, he he said, rose early in the morning and walked out and spent a considerable time in the woods in prayer and meditation, preached to the Indians both in the morning and afternoon. They behaved soberly in general. Two or three in particular appeared under some religious concern with whom I discoursed privately. One told me, this is the most beautiful thing in his diary, so listen carefully. He saw almost no fruit that year among these Indians, but here early on he says, one told me, quote, Her heart had cried ever since she heard me preach. Think about that. These are people that have never heard the gospel. He rides into the woods, unassociated in any way whatsoever with them, takes up lodging with them, sleeps first on the straw, builds a little hut for himself. He has tuberculosis already from college, he'll die from that eight years after he contracts tuberculosis. He's coughing up blood, living in the cold. He talks about his teeth aching, and he rides to a people he's never met to preach to them for their salvation. Um, He endures an incredible amount of difficulty there in Konamik, very interesting, only 20 miles from Stockbridge. Stockbridge is where Edwards will go to the Indians after he's kicked out of his church. Uh, it's very interesting to me, the example of Brainerd, even to the greatest theologian America ever produced. That when he is wrongly expelled out of his church in Northampton, Edwards will go to the Indians just next door to where Brainerd began his missionary work. Um, Tuesday, September 20th, 1743. Uh, Brainerd talks about more of the hardships he endured. He said, Had thoughts of going forward on my journey to the Indians, but toward night was taken with hard pain in my teeth. Shivering cold could not possibly recover a, comfort degree of, a comfortable degree of warmth in the whole night following. I continued in full pain all night. In the morning had a hard fever and pains over all my body. I had a sense of the divine goodness in appointing this to be the place of my sickness among my friends who were very kind to me. Now, throughout the remainder of that year, you will read about his interactions with the Indians, and, and yet, it's very interesting that what drove Brainerd on in his missionary work was not a deep affection for the Indians. You might think he talks about the warm fellowship that they had together. He's in extreme pain. He will actually, in numerous places in his diaries, say things like, um, my soul couldn't stand to be around the rude, poor, ignorant Indians. Um, He he talks about them making fun of him. He talks about knowing that they were rejecting him, that they didn't want to hear him preach, that they weren't a comfort to him. There are rare occasions where he'll say things like, my Indians were glad to have me home. But other than that, he is alone in the woods among a people whose language he doesn't speak. He has to work with interpreters who don't speak the language of scripture or of the culture he's coming from. He's trying to learn the language of the Indians. He's coughing up blood. He's, he is in extreme pain. After a year, he leaves uh, Konamik, and he takes a new call, and he goes, ultimately to the Indians in Cross Weekend. Now, that is where he's going to see fruit. He doesn't see much fruit in his first year among uh, the Konamika Indians. He sees fruit among the Indians in Cross Weekend. He'll see 77 baptisms and conversions in one year. He'll have a congregation of roughly around 130. He tries even to find land for the Indians where he's seeing fruit And they will ultimately settle in a little town just outside of Princeton called Cranberry. If you've ever been to Cranberry, New Jersey, it's one of the quaintest towns in the United States. Beautiful. Um, And he will labor and yet to no avail to see a congregation of Indians form there, which would have been the first congregation of Indian Christians in American history, based solely on his labors among them in Cross Weekend. Now, he is weighed down with the devil worship of the Indians. So, in addition to the sickness, in addition to the cruel treatment, in addition to the, the lack of affection and comfort, in addition to the loneliness, he is burdened about their devil worship. Notice this Friday, December 7th, 1744, he says, spent some time in prayer in the morning, enjoyed some freedom and affection in the duty. And then he says, spent a little time in writing on a divine subject. And then he says, then I visited the Indians and preached to them, but under inexpressible dejection, I had no heart to speak to them and could not do it. As I forced myself, I knew they must hate to hear me as having, but just got home from their idolatrous feast and devil worship. Now he will talk about how often he has to witness these pagan rituals among the Indians and how that weighs sort of like the Apostle Paul going into Athens and his spirit being provoked when he saw all the idols all around. By the way, we are far too desensitized to the idolatry in our own own culture. As um, he labors among the Indians across weekend and he continues uh, his efforts to see the work there, his health just rapidly deteriorates. The tuberculosis is getting worse. He's becoming more and more unable to pull himself physically into the work. In 1747, the same year that he dies, he will pull pull himself away. He will go and stay with Jonathan Dickinson for a time. He will then end up the last 19 weeks of his life in the home of Jonathan Edwards. He will say farewell to his Indians. And he will lose one of his brothers that same year just before he dies. This is one of the beautiful statements about how lonely... Uh, and how painful a mission work this was for Brainerd. On Tuesday, April 14th, just six months before he dies, 1747, he writes this in his diary, diary was able to do little or nothing, Spent some time with Mr. Bunyan and other friends. It's really beautiful. This day my brother went to my people. Nobody suffered like David Brainerd. It's, it's almost unthinkable what this man endured, and how he pressed through all those challenges for the salvation of a people he wasn't related to. He had a hard time loving. He had nothing in common with. Couldn't even speak their language in the midst of all his sickness, all the loneliness. And yet, I find it remarkable, one of the things that's not been pointed out enough in Brainerd's diary, is that when he speaks of the Indians as he spoke of his brother going to my people, he speaks of the Indians as my Indians. That's, the, that's, the, that's how he viewed the, These are the people God has entrusted me to. These are my people. These are the people I have been sent to for the sake of the gospel. Now, as we close our time together, I would first challenge you to consider how much uh, this man gave up for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. You know, as I read through Brainerd's diary, I thought about my own selfishness, my own pride, my own love of comfort and pleasure, and, and, and when you read the diary of this man, you have to ask yourself, what am I willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? I mean, he was willing to sacrifice everything. He did sacrifice everything. He gave up having a wife. He gave up the comfort of friends and family. He gave up the comfort he needed to recover physically. He gave up any notoriety. He was offered a pastorate in one of the most prestigious churches before he died, and he turned it down to remain a missionary in the woods of America with the Indians. This man was remarkable. Um, No doubt it was Brainerd's zeal for holiness, zeal for the conversion of the lost, earnestness in prayer, Perseverance in the midst of unparalleled affliction that set him apart as one of the most important figures in church history. Now, that being said, I want to point out three things that I think we need to criticize about David Brainerd. And this is risky because I've just called you to consider his sacrifice, and especially if you're young, to think, what am I going to do with my life? You know, you guys, we get one life. That's it. You get one life. That's it. you got to spend it well for Jesus. I mean, if you learn anything from David Brainerd, it's that you get one life, and you got to spend it well for Jesus. I'm going to tell you a story, not just young men. I, I grew up, I was very blessed to grow up in a strong Reformed home. My dad went to a Reformed seminary, and one of his professors had several children Um. one of whom was not converted until he was in his 50s. And my wife and I had the privilege of of meeting my dad's professor's son when he was in his 70s. We were a young couple and we had connected in some way and we found ourselves in the home of Carl and Debbie Rudolph, was their names, and they they had grown children and grandchildren. And we, we started asking them about life growing up, and Carl said, look, I wasted my life. I wasn't converted until I was in my 50s. We didn't raise our children to know the Lord. We didn't do devotions at home. We weren't super committed to the church. Um, and then the Lord brought me and my wife to repentance and saving faith. Carl had a bookshelf that he had three-ring binders on, all through it, and he went over and got got one out, and he sat down and he showed these laminated pages to my wife and me, and he said, after I was converted, I started writing devotionals for my children to read to our grandchildren every Lord's Day. never seen anything like this in my life. He realized that he had wasted the better part of his life, and he wanted to do something for the Lord at that point. I'm going to tell you another story similar to that Uh, I was waiting tables in seminary. I was 25 years old. I was making $9.24 an hour. I wanted to marry my wife, who is the daughter of a doctor, who didn't want her to marry a man making $9.24 an hour, (laughs) clearly. Um, (laughs) He's a very logical and judicious man. Um, And um, trying to go to seminary, not knowing how I'm going to pay for seminary education and wait tables and work construction and... um, Uh, One day I meet a couple, an older couple in their 80s, and I'm waiting their table, and somehow we get talking about life, and I tell them I am a seminarian at a Presbyterian seminary, and they said, oh, we're Presbyterian. And I said, oh, wonderful. And he said, well, what kind of Presbyterian are you? And I thought, okay, well, at least he knows there are different kinds. (laughs) I said, we're the kind that believe the Bible. And he said, we are too. And he happened to be in a very conservative USA congregation at the time. And he said, Are you a Calvinist? And I was like, Uh, yeah, are you a Calvinist? And he said, We are. And I said, Wonderful, I'd love to hear your story. And he said, Well, I made a fortune playing the Bulls and the Bears. I did not know what the Bulls and the Bears were making $9.24 an hour, needless to say, at that point. He then scolded me on the stock market. And, um, We talked for a good bit longer, and his name was Joe Estes, Joe and Ruby, then leave. And a couple weeks later, my seminary president comes to me, and he said, some guy paid off your tuition and gave you a really large amount of money for books. Joe Estes. I said, huh. So I, I went, and I thanked Joe, and Joe said, look, I wasted my life living for money. I lived for money. He said, we had everything we wanted, and now I'm at the end of my life, and I want to do something for the Lord. Joe and Ruby came to hear me preach my first sermon in 2005. It's very special. I look forward to being in heaven with Joe Estes one day. Now, young men need to heed the example of David Brainerd. Older men need to heed the example of those who didn't follow the example of David Brainerd when he was a young man. I do want to raise three brief criticisms, very brief, very quickly. Brainerd was far too introspective. He constantly fixated on his own vileness. We must fixate on how vile we are if we are ever going to come to Jesus Christ. But as Robert Murray McShane famously said, for every one look within, take ten looks to Jesus. The Lord does not want us just focusing on the wickedness and vileness within. He wants us fixing our eyes on Jesus. Brainerd, in my opinion, did not fix his eyes on Jesus enough because he was the definition of morbid introspection, too much focusing on his own wickedness and focusing too much internally. Secondly, and related to that, I think Brainerd had a lack of gospel clarity. One of the things that you learn as you read through the diary, Brainerd almost is reticent to talk about the benefits of Jesus Christ. And, and it, it's not a good thing. He'll actually say that he preached one day about not loving the benefits of Christ unless we love the person of Christ, which is true. But you almost never find Brainerd ever talking about the benefits of Christ. Uh, he will talk about how Christ purchased holiness and how he wishes he could be as holy as Christ, which is good and right and necessary, but you almost never find him talking about the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus. He on rare occasions talks about the righteousness of Jesus. And in one sermon on Jesus as the Lamb of God on October 5th, uh, he will talk about an outline that he gave about Jesus being the Lamb of God and, and what Jesus accomplished as the Paschal Lamb. And yet that's a rare entry in the diary. I think that's something that we need to reflect on. He had a he had a reticence to hold up Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. And then the third uh, thing that I would note is that Brainerd had a lack of care for himself. Uh, You know, John Owen, the great Puritan, Prince of the Puritan theologians said that at the end of his life, uh, he would trade all his learning for better health, that he had not cared for himself enough. Uh, sometimes I think we can look at a David Brainerd, and John Piper does this, and says, well, you could ask, what would have happened if he'd cared for himself? But you, you might better ask, well, what happened because he didn't care for himself? I'm not sure that's altogether the right question. Um, I think that we are called by God at times to withdraw, to rest, to heal, to get the necessary strength that we need for the sacrificial labors to which God calls us. But let me say this as we close. David Brainerd rightly rises to the praiseworthy commendations of some of the greatest pastors and theologians of the last 300 years. Though he was a man of clay feet, he nevertheless lived his life desirous of being fully devoted to his maker. I'm sure that none of us have met anyone who so wholly gave himself to seeking to live his or her life for the glory of God and the good of the souls of men like David Brainerd. And I'm sure that we have not. And I'm sure that we would benefit by following his example and seeking to give ourselves wholly to the work of the Lord Jesus and the advancement of his kingdom for the salvation of others.